Hello, I am Kate Aronoff, the host of today's episode of Climate Crisis, Time for a New Society, a podcast collaboration between the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation and Verso Books. We are in Glasgow during COP26, and I am thrilled to be joined by Andreas Malm, author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and his latest book, White Skin, Black Fuel with the Zetkin Collective, both of which were published by Verso Books. I'm also joined by Sabrina Fernandez, a Brazilian eco-socialist organizer, communicator, and fellow at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Andreas Malm, Sabrina Fernandez, thank you so much for being here. We are in the COP26 coalition space, this sprawling counter-COP, you might call it, that's happening, this sort of long tradition of having a place for movements outside of the very, very sterile halls of the blue zone or the green zone or however many zones there might be in a particular year of COP. And we, you know, are, are all, I think, aligned with movements in, in some way, but these sorts of things have been happening. Neither of you are strangers to the COP process. So just wanted to start off and say, you know, what brings you here to Glasgow, but to the conference itself? Why do you want to be around these sort of uh, sometimes fairly hopeless seeming global gatherings and to this movement space in particular? Why are you, you know, uh, having these talks, these, these podcasts and uh, spending time, spending time in this very cold, cold little city? For me, it's important, like I've been researching uh, COPs for a really long time, been involved with these processes, and I really do think it's important to know what goes on inside these negotiations and who the stakeholders are, like corporate, inf- corporate influence w- within the UNFCCC is something that a lot of people know about already, but it feels to me like this time it's even more so the presence of these corporations as um, direct partners. There are also initiatives from the Secretariat, like uh, Global Climate Action, that's supposed to bring in civil society, but the number of corporations, people from financial markets involved, that's really big, and they have a lot of access, and they've been getting a lot of room to be able to you know, make their proposals and be heard. And I absolutely understand that when we come in as observers and members of social movements are there, Um, There's a process within the cops to pretend to listen, to pretend to open up space, even like very privileged space, like to speak at one of these uh, high level meetings and things like that. But that's not actually being translated uh, into the negotiations. So um, while we feel um, from the outside and building with the People Summit and being in these uh, places, there are like four movement building for solidarity, for thinking about climate justice directly, is that there is a huge gap between um, what's been announced in, in the press all of the time and what's actually going on inside uh, inside of these negotiate, uh, negotiating, uh, negotiating spaces. So that's quite worrisome, but we're here to keep an eye on that, to put some pressure, but we know that change actually comes from grassroots movement. And that's why we, we need to come together. It's important to, to be together at this time, but not only when COP is happening, of course. Well, I personally um, don't have accreditation to the Blue Zone, so I'm not going inside to look at what's going on with the actual negotiations. I, I don't I can't muster the energy to do They're that. They're super boring anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I've been I've been inside once that was at COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009. It didn't make me long to go back. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, for me what's important about these COP summits isn't so much what's going on inside but what's going on uh, in the alternative spaces so cop summits have proved extremely disappointing in terms of <laughs> producing any actual emissions reductions as we know more than half of all the historical emissions have happened since the UNFCCC was signed and since the first cop was held in berlin in 1995 uh, but the cop summits are occasions for the movement to um, f- further try to s- consolidate its work, solidify uh, contacts, networks, discuss next steps, uh, things like that. Uh, and that's why, to me, it's so ex- extremely depressing to learn that next year's COP will be in Sharm el-Sheikh, 
in Egypt, um, not only is it a way of rewarding Abdel Fattah al-Sisi for having crushed the Egyptian revolution, but it's also a guarantee that there will be no movement building virtually, because it's impossible to have uh, protests and uh, oppositional political activity in, in Egypt. Um, so, yeah. Uh, here it's possible, thankfully, and I think the movement obviously has grown over the time. I mean, when I was at the first COP in 1995, I think we were something like 500 people in the alternative space and in the demonstration. Uh, now it was the biggest, I think it was the biggest COP demonstration ever, uh, perhaps roughly equal to the size of that in, in Copenhagen in 2009, but now there were events in many other, many other places as well, in London and, and demonstrations in many, many towns across the UK. But the movement has obviously not grown fast enough, uh, but it's, of course it's, it's inspiring to see that it has uh, uh, increased in, in size and it's also inspiring to see how prominent um, the, the justice aspect is how uh, people from the Global South are uh, taking center stage in the discussions and uh, taking up a lot of, of space uh, naturally. And uh, the idea of most affected people and areas has really been firmly established at the, at the core of the rhetoric of the movement. Um, so uh, there are good signs, as far as I can see, in, in, the, in, the, in the process of building the climate justice movement. Maybe we can dig into that a little bit. So you were mentioning the demonstration that happened this past Saturday. It's Tuesday now. Estimates ranged from upwards of 100,000 people potentially uh, were, were involved that day. And I was reading How to Blow Up a Pipeline on my plane over and recognized a lot of characters. Uh, There's a big Extension Rebellion contingent at the march. I saw somebody with the XR block had a patch that said nonviolence on their jacket. Uh, so I just wanted to get sort of your appraisal of what that of of the demonstrations of this sort of counter movement activity and sort of what kind of effect you think it might have on on what's happening inside and you know as a kind of counter to that maybe sort of what would it look like for something more along the lines of the direct action program that you lay out in how to blow up a pipeline to extract a win in uh in negotiating rooms right what what might that possibly look like so you know what have we got now and kind of what what could be uh in the in maybe not the next immediate cop but cop 28 or 29 or 45 to begin with, it strikes me as somewhat ironic that this is the 20th anniversary of the great wave of summit protests in 2001. So from the WTO summit in Seattle in 1999 up until 2001, uh, the, there was this, as, as I'm sure you remember, wave of quite massive and occasionally quite confrontational <coughs> protests happening around all sorts of uh, summits. Uh, and in 2001, this sort of culminated with the uh, events in Genoa uh, that were fairly violent. Um, and in a sense, I have to say that it's strange that you don't see that outpouring of anger uh, in Glasgow today that you saw in a place like Genoa 20 years ago, given the monumental failure of governments that are meeting in Glasgow to deal with the crisis. In fact, what they're doing is they're generally accelerating it. Uh, and uh, after the global season in hell that we just experienced this summer, people should have reasons to be upset. Um, so the fact that we are still marching completely or virtually completely uh, um, obediently, um, gently, politely, uh, in a very civil fashion, voicing our uh, pleas to the world leaders to uh, change their uh, behavior is a little bit disappointing to me. Uh, I would wish for 
um, for more expressions of rage and for more militant tactics uh, in in uh, protesting the summit. I mean, if you look back at what what the movement did succeed with in 1999 in Seattle, it was to actually fundamentally disrupt the negotiations and and thereby made a make a, a, a real impact on the development of free trade agreements. And uh, I would hope for something like that to eventually happen at a COP summit, and it should happen sooner rather than later. Uh, yeah, so uh, that said, I participated in the demonstration. I found it extremely... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was very exciting that it was so big. And I'm not, I'm not in any way opposed to the XR contingents in the demonstration or, or for, that, for that matter, the various XR street theater performances that you can watch happening around the, the city. But much of this also comes with a feeling of, uh, of strategic powerlessness, if you see what I mean, that there's not really any, <coughs> any sense that what we're doing is... Does does actually have a a, a real way of uh, impacting what's going on inside? There, there's no uh, there's no real disruptive force, and this is I think the general problem of the climate movement in the, in the global north at least at this stage that we're sort of searching for forms of intervention that that can make a real difference somehow. And uh, you can, I think you can uh, see this also in the, how the Fridays for Future movement developed, because it's radicalizing at the level of rhetoric, at least. So these, the strike that, that sort of marked the comeback of the movement on the 24th of September had the hashtag uproot the system, which sounds pretty anti-systemic, almost, almost anti-capitalist, although that's not the, the word that, that's being used. Uh, but it, and also the manifesto for that strike was filled with with talk about colonialism and most affected people and areas and things like that. Uh, but uh, at the end of that day, Greta Thunberg posted a tweet that said, "We were striking today, and we asked world leaders to uproot the system." But you can't really ask world leaders to uproot the system. I mean, it's a bit like basing anti-fascist politics in Italy in the 1920s on asking Mussolini to commit suicide or something like that. So uh, you need to develop some kind of strategic path for exercising power so that you are actually able to accomplish something like uprooting the system, which is a very ambitious thing to do. But the climate movement doesn't really have that yet, at least not in the global north. And that's where we are. I mean, there, there's a big gap between the ambition to, to uproot an entire system and what we are capable of actually doing. It, we, we, we're not uprooting a system just by marching. I want to get your thoughts on that, Sabrina. And you've been inside the Blue Zone, so I'm wondering if you can say also if you've seen sort of any effect of the, the movements outside within these very high-level negotiations about things like Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, loss and damage, these, you know, in some sense, it's very technical talks. Um, and if you know that is resonating inside and if what your sort of take on someone as someone who has observed these processes for a long time as to if that's changed over time in terms of what the sort of inside outside dynamic looks like yeah we feel we have a feeling that if you're inside the blue zone you're sheltered from reality like nothing else is happening outside they absolutely don't care there have been some protests outside of the entrance of the blue zone they're very small like about like the, I think that one of the biggest were like 100 to 100 people. So that's quite disheartening when you look into it. Um, and it really, like for the negotiators, it's like nothing's happening. There's They don't feel the pressure from society as well, uh, uh, at all. Um, they might get it in the news, but they're also appropriating language to make sure that, you know, they can send out a message as if they were listening to it. So, for example, you can walk around and, within these like corporate pavilions, they're talking about just transition. Like that's our language. And how are they talking about it? Well, just transitions about setting the right price for carbon. This is what they're calling it. So it's not about people. It's a, it's not about nature at all. It's about, um, uh, just just reducing these things to like compensating mechanisms within the economic system. And um, I do have a feeling that like we, we've had around Glasgow for the past week, some um, 
uh, blocking of roads and bridges that has happened. I think that has led like, to some arrests. I think like Scientist Rebellion was kind of involved in some of these. But they're very marginal popping up here and there. Something that I thought was quite interesting is that like the beam workers in Glasgow are on strike. So like climate activists have been joining them and like in the picket lines every morning. So showing this kind of solidarity within the working class. And I think this is a feeling that we need to develop uh, when we're having these cops because sectoritization is really high right now. Like it's been even hard for delegates to get in. They're checking everything. There's like verbal harassment by, by the policemen saying they're going to confiscate phones and, uh, you know, they're going to draw you out and you won't be able to get in. So they're like this feeling that that it's not possible. Like the on the, the first day of the World Leaders Summit, they just like blocked off um, uh, about like two kilometers of road and residents couldn't even cross. It wasn't just for like for cars. They didn't let pedestrians that went into the grocery store to get groceries come out and get into their houses. And you could ask around and, well, we can't do anything about it. So the level of disruption that this COP26 is having in Glasgow as well uh, it's upset, upsetting for the working class here. The fact that people with accreditation to the Blue Zone get a travel pass for two weeks to travel for free, but not city residents. I, like, that's quite unfair. What kind of message does it send? Like, these very privileged people are coming here to, you know, discuss our future and climate change. And, well, they even get access to our buses. And they change the bus lines. And people don't know where the buses are coming to. Like, you have, like, people like with, like, disabilities and seniors having to walk much longer. So obviously, um, the secretariat and the way they set up this, like they don't care about what's happening outside at all. And even when they create some spaces, you know, so letting people speak and creating like special caucuses for this, it's around mechanisms that are already in place. So like, let's create a caucus to discuss the impact on indigenous and traditionals, uh, traditional communities. Um, but we need to frame this uh, around the sustainable development goals. So everything's very restrictive and it's been working for a long time. Like, I, I think the way that they do this and, um, you know, the fact that it's going to be in Egypt, well, we need to do it like in the global north and then we need to do it in the global south. And then they say that they're being fair in that way. But where you hold it, it makes a huge difference in the global south as well. And for them, I think like when in Chile, you had like this massive protest when COP was about to happen there. And I was so excited because like I was like heading there and everything. And then Piñera changed it to Madrid. And that was the perfect scheme for the UNFCCC. Because you had all of this grassroots process of building the summit there, the, the Cumbre de los Pueblos in Chile with, you know, and all of this power coming from the streets of people really, uh, you know, getting right in the face of the Pineda government and protesters being shot, losing their eyes, you know, and the kind of anger that Andreas was talking about there, that was really good momentum. And then they shifted it and that kind of really emptied the cumbre and we couldn't, we didn't have time to build something actually in Madrid when this was happening. And I think the message here is that we can't be attached to this calendar. We can't move about around the UNFCCC calendar of these conferences and these meetings. We need to have the anger everywhere else when they're not properly set up with their drones and their snipers and, and you know, for the securitization that actually puts us too much at risk and tries to, you know, it's a, it's a tactic for trying to make us more afraid than angry, right? And just to give a little bit more context of that, there's a giant steel wall through like half of Glasgow that is blocking off the conference center. And it's more militarized, like you were saying, than I've ever seen these talks be before, even after Paris, even even after there were you know massive terror attacks immediately before the Paris climate talks in 2015. Oh yeah, and, and this some of this is being justified saying that it's because of the pandemic. And so, like, we have to, like, have, like, even more security because of the pandemic. But we know exactly what they're doing, right? This is, this is just for sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll stop here. But I thought it was interesting that the company providing security inside of the, inside of the Blue Zone is G4S, this private prison and detention center operator who I guess won a contract from the Johnson government uh, to, you know, keep, make sure that people are in line. 
But but I think it's important to remember here that there's been a long process of securitization and militarization of the COPs. And I think the key moment here was COP15 in Copenhagen. It was a key moment in the process of excluding civil society, social movements from the space. But it was also a key moment, of course, in the whole trajectory of these negotiations, because that was the moment when Barack Obama introduced initially with very little support the idea of abandoning mandatory emissions cuts, uh, obligatory (coughs) mitigation burdens, um, and instead opting for voluntary uh, what now are called nationally determined contributions. And that massively changed the whole balance, the whole, sorry, the whole dynamic of the negotiations because up until um, 2009, COP15 in Copenhagen, there had been a, a process of how to f- uh, allocate, how to distribute the em- emissions reductions between rich and poor countries. And in those days, there were constantly uh, discussions about schemes like contraction and convergence or greenhouse development rights. It feels like an eon ago, but it's not that long long time ago. Or for, for that matter, the Brazilian uh, proposal where the idea, a completely revolutionary, but also entirely logical idea that the, uh, the burden to cut emissions should be proportional to the historical responsibility for causing the problem of climate change. All of these schemes, all of these notions about how to fairly distribute emissions reductions between poor and rich countries made for a kind of dynamic in the negotiations that also was productive for the alliance between poor countries and social movements. So you had uh, uh, some critical negotiators from the global south, from countries like Bolivia and Sudan, not the least, that were uh, aligned with social movements from the outside and used them to put pressure on rich countries. Uh, and that, that was sort of challenging for the rich countries. Uh, after uh, COP15, we've had instead the turn to uh, NDCs and a completely voluntary system where that that dynamic is lost. And also you've had a process of excluding uh, more and more of civil society and social movements from the negotiating space. So I think this is, this is not related to the actual threat of terror attacks, such as the ones that happen in Paris. Uh, but it's more uh, how business as usual as a kind of structural phenomenon in uh, in the COP summits protects itself and uh, defeats various challenges. And that's really helpful context. For the sake of not tying ourselves in this room to the COP calendar too much, I want to zoom out maybe a little bit and talk a little bit about something, Andreas, you've laid out in your newest book, White Skin, Black Fuel, this sort of extensive dossier uh, tracking the sort of collaboration between sort of fossil fuel interest and white supremacy and xenophobic agendas in many parts of the world that I'm going to very inaccurately summarize here. It's a very long book. Everyone should go read it. Um, but I wanted to zoom in and, and, and just ask you, Sabrina, about how some of these dynamics play out in Brazil, which obviously as people I'm sure are aware now has a very right-wing government under Bolsonaro. Um, but also, as we were talking a little bit about before the recording turned on, has this sort of very er, neoliberal strain, which is at COP now presenting itself as a sort of champions of green growth. Yeah, well, I think the Andreas and the Zetkin Collective, you guys did a really good job uh, giving like a there's like even like a part on Brazil there in the book that I think is quite accurate in describing um, the way that the the, the the Jair Bolsonaro government holds on to power and this level of like uh, far right conspiracies and how that's very much connected to the economic interests um, of the global north in Brazil as well. And this is something for us to to notice because you know we had these um, one of our four like former foreign ministry there have been a lot of changes in the cabinet. Um, in the in the Jair Bolsonaro government, but like Ernesto Araújo, uh, who was you know uh, one of the foreign ministers, and he was like completely talking about like climate denialism and cultural Marxism and all of those things, and at the same time the former minister of the environment Ricardo Salles. He will be claiming, well, there's no actual problem with deforestation in Brazil. So, uh, uh, and if you're complaining, if you people in the global north are complaining, just give us more money. 
right? So like trying to funnel this money um, through these government institutions that we know were like they arrived and they cut the, the budget for uh, fighting and mitigating climate change by 95%. That was like one of their first acts in government. And then people think, well, denialism is pretty, pretty strong. And this is what's setting the tone. But this is one side of the, well, the actual strategy here, right? Denial, climate denialism is very useful because it puts us uh, in a sense that we're completely doomed. If we have like the heads of state in this, you know, could be Trump in the US or like Bolsonaro in Brazil, they're denying something that's happening right now and not uncommon like what Barack Obama just said, this un he said uncommon crisis. He's absolutely wrong there. It's happening right now. It's been happening for a while. And this crisis is something that's affecting a lot of people. And if, you know, a lot of people think, well, climate change really is real. And there's not even that much of a sense of like telling general people to believe the science, believe the science. The science has been there. Exxon, Exxon has known about the science before we knew about the science. So it's never been actually about believing the science. But the fact that denialism creates this general state that like of hopelessness, and then anything that they can introduce that's not denialism might look like something positive. And this is a strategy coming out of the Bolsonaro government that's very smart. I've been making a point for a really long time that this government knows exactly what it's doing. It's following its, its, its project like to every tiny detail. It's not, they're not stupid, they're not dumb, they know what they're doing. And they dismantle processes of environmental policy. They take away the people who were more activists that were more engaged in environmentalism in Brazil, in social justice in Brazil. They take them out and then they reintroduce everything through these neoliberal policies. And that's why you have the Bolsonaro government saying that, yes, no, yeah, we'll sign this forest deal here to, you know, to curb deforestation, to even stop deforestation, because we are the future of the green economy. And why? Because now everything that's left and... A lot of what's left is actually like not that interesting to agribusiness to, to go and like take away and set on fire anyway. And you make sure that you're not, uh, you're not actually like uh, following through with the land claims of indigenous communities, traditional communities. You're not following through with the demand for agrarian reform in the country. And Brazil is one of the places uh, that's like most unequal in terms of um, uh, land property uh, distribution. And then you don't follow through with any of that. So the land titles, they're with home. They're with large agribusiness companies that are completely connected to the financial market. And then they're the ones that get to say, oh, here, see, we're not setting anything on fire anymore. We have this forest here. We're preserving it. Please pay us for it. Right. And then you get integrated into these carbon market um, offset schemes that we know these are false solutions. It's just a way of profiting for uh, in profiting um, and like channeling these profits directly um, through these partnerships. So it's no wonder that the Brazilian government pavilion uh, inside the blue zone. It's completely sponsored by industry and agribusiness associations. And I've been seeing some of these terrible panels because this is the kind of like uh, terrible work that researchers have to do sometimes and like have to, to go through like this mental indigestion and like terrible panels. And they're talking about blockchain and how we're going to use, you know, these credits for, you know, improving things in society or even claiming that Brazil is actually where other countries want to be at because we already have so much renewables and they're talking about ethanol here so like biofuels coming from agribusiness and monocrops and they're talking about hydro dams like Belo Monte that came out under a progressive government so like under the PT government and saying well, see we're up completely placed uh, very well positioned to lead the world in this direction and then you come out from these things where people were looking at Bolsonaro as this outcast and they might look at him as a partner now. And this is very, very smart. Obviously, I'm quite sure that these targets uh, for like um, curbing deforestation by the government, they're not going to follow through with this, that 2025 and that 2030 targets. Obviously, um, also because I'm hoping that we get rid of Bolsonaro very soon. <laughs> so, and maybe we might follow through with a different government, but then we have like this 
problem with continuance and the fact that society in general might feel like, well, denialism was terrible. So yes, let's embrace these mechanisms. And that might be something that, you know, a former Lula government perhaps in Brazil might say, yes, let's embrace this. This is a good direction because they still think that to govern, you need to be with agribusiness, you need to be with the banks. So, and this is what these people are proposing. This is what they want. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that because the dynamics sound very familiar to what the left in the United States faced with Trump, which was that he's so stupid. If we just get him out, then that will solve solve all of our problems. And as we're seeing, Joe Biden is in power and we have not yet had great success on any number of fronts is not uh, necessarily a friend to, to left-wing movements. Obviously, Joe Biden is not Lula. Uh, those are very different different leaders. But can you just talk a bit about uh, what what you imagine the work on the left might look like under a Lula government and sort of, you know, is there an expectation that a Lula government would be, you know, less friendly to the sort of developmentalism that defined the Rousseff administration, for instance? And is there a sort of hope that, you know, some of these deeper, longstanding issues around things like land demarcation, um, that that might, there might be more progress, you know, in this future administration, hopefully, than in the, in the first term or in the Rousseff government? It's this thing about like post-traumatic stress that we have like with the far-right government. So like uh, we're going through like the traumatic stress right now in Brazil. We're not in the post-era yet, but I think in the U.S. the left is suffering a little bit from this or what um, you guys went through with with Trump. And I was with Raj Patel like uh, two days ago, and we were talking about it. Like like he was like, well, like the Secretary of Agriculture in the U.S. They just want to model things after Brazil. They say, well, like we need to, you know, do these like agribusiness modernization schemes. And this is how uh, agriculture needs to be in the U.S. or perhaps like the UAE. Like those are terrible examples. Those are like the most terrible examples. But they kind of shape these things as like technical approaches. So I think the, le- the left is lacking in a sense of like um, problem with audacity and lack of imagination and just letting them say, well, um, this is not this is not about about us, you know, denying that these problems are reality. Look at us. We're actually following the science here. And like these technical uh, reports say that maybe we should do things this way and that way. And I think the Biden administration is doing a good job in like uh, putting this image forward. And this is a like perfect scheme for demobilizing and Lula did this for a really long time in Brazil. And um, a part of the, the the difficulty that we face in Brazil right now is that like, I'm, I'm someone, I'm going to campaign for Lula. I want, right, I actually wanted to get rid of Bolsonaro earlier, like if, if possibly yesterday. Um, but if the elections come through, like, and Lula is the most viable candidate, I hope Lula wins. But we're going to have a real big challenge in t- trying to pressure the Lula government because if in the previous government, we spent a lot, a lot of time, especially those of us engaged in environmental justice, uh, hearing that you can't call out the government on these things because this weakens the government, or you're an imperialist who doesn't want the, the Brazil to develop because you're getting in the way of our hydro dams or things like that. These very simplistic approaches, and I know like, I'm just open a bracket here, uh, but the imperialist, anti-imperialist discourse, I think we're going backwards on this right now. And it's just like there are only two poles and there are like no complex dynamics and there's no sub-imperialism. And if you criticize anything coming from a government that's an enemy of the United States, you're siding with the United States and you're siding with imperialism. And this discourse, I know it's going to be very much applied in the Brazilian case if Lula comes back because it was applied before. And now even more so because of this post-traumatic stress like of coming from this experience. And then if you just criticize anything in the left, then they're saying, wow, so you want Bolsonaro to come back. Like I'm a person, like as an like eco-socialist activist, communicator in Brazil, I've been called by these people in the leftist ranks, like uh, like a Bolsonaro supporter, or like uh, one of their like party newspapers 
uh, like did like this little editorial, not signed by anyone, of course. And they said like I was like part of the Bolsonarista left. Right? Why? Because I'm calling out the left on these contradictions. And we can't be afraid to do that. Otherwise, we're still going to be like in this completely, um, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> this scenario where we're just reacting to what the right wing is doing to us. And so we react right now and we're losing, we're resisting and we're losing. And the leftist government comes in with all of its contradictions, announcing the contradictions. And then, well, we can't do anything about it because we're afraid of the right wing coming back. This all sounds so familiar. <laughs> um, and I want to I wanna turn to you, Andreas, because reading your book, I mean, you make, uh, I think, very compelling diagnosis of the mostly sort of Anglophone northern climate movement and its sometimes dogmatic relationship to nonviolence, let's say. And... As I was reading it, you know, I, I, I was thinking about the sort of other tendencies of that milieu over time. And one of the defining features is this real ambivalence about state power and about taking state power. And, and you know, the Brazilian context is such a striking difference between that, where there is, you know, a very complex relationship between mass movements and party structures. And that's very, anything like that is so new in the United States. So I, I'd be curious to hear from you, Andreas, you know, what... What do you see as the role of direct action along a spectrum from school strikes to sabotage, right, uh, in, you know, solving this giant planning problem that is the, cl the climate crisis? Like, we, there is no route to dealing with a climate crisis which doesn't run through state power. And so, you know, what is the relationship between, and I don't want to posit these things as mutually exclusive in any way, but between a sort of radical direct action program and the sort of resurgent electoral interest uh, in, in these, you know, in, in the UK and the US especially? Very good question. I, I completely agree with you that we cannot envision anything like progress on the climate front without a central role for the state. And that... Um, state power has to be exercised if emissions are going to be reduced in the global north as quickly as they should. There is in the on the direct action left a common, fairly common at least, illusion that direct action is not a means but a solution. Like we, if we only have an abundance of direct uh, direct actions everywhere, we can take down the fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, and uh, that's how we'll solve this. <coughs> I don't I don't think that's even remotely possible because the fossil fuel infrastructure is the largest technological infrastructure on Earth. We cannot really um, imagine that being dismantled by. If, you know, billions of people engaging in direct actions is not going to happen that way. Uh, I think that direct action, mass action in various forms are critical for shifting the balance of forces and for propelling state action. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, most of the tiny little victories that have been achieved by the climate movement have come uh, have have been realized through that way. I mean, the, the suspension of the Keystone XL pipeline in the U.S., first by Barack Obama and then by Joe Biden, obviously is a response to the protests against that project. The Coal Commission in Germany, which came up with a, the last date of 2038, was a response to Ende Gelände and the uh, contestation of, of the lignite coal mines in Germany. Um, in, a, in another situation where the balance of forces would have been more to our advantage, we would have uh, had a better outcome of that commission with a closer date, if ideally immediate phase-out of coal. Uh, but, uh, and, I mean, another, another instance could be the uprising after the murder of George Floyd, which had, a, I think, a fairly direct relation to what went on in... Uh, parliamentary politics in you in the U.S. Uh, uh, during the rest of 2020. Not only the, the presidential elections, but I mean, more local things happening as as in the city of Minneapolis itself. So direct action, if it's going to be meaningful, has to be conceived of in relation to 
to state power. Uh, this can take many forms. It's, it's very difficult to have that kind of bridge between mass action and state power if, if the, the, the people in charge of the state is someone like Bolsonaro or Trump because they're completely uh, blind and deaf to that sort of pressure. If you have uh, politicians that are amenable to pressure in charge, then that makes a difference. That doesn't mean that we should have illusions about Joe Biden or about uh, the Greens in Germany, for that matter. But uh, for this dynamic to work, there needs to be some sort of a, at least potential bridge between the outside and the inside. Now, uh, there is perhaps another illusion here that I may be guilty of propagating, namely that we can sort of remote control the state and uh, have it do... Uh, our bidding, if you see what I mean. So if we only amass sufficient force in direct actions, we can sort of force the state to do what's necessary. I mean, that that can only work so far. I mean, they, they will eventually have to become a sort of rupture or breaking point where... Uh, you can't expect an, uh, a normal capitalist state to continue taking down the fossil fuel infrastructure at the, at, the, at, the, at the speed that we wanted to. And that's where you have a, a potential situation for, for some kind of a deeper transformation in society. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. We, we have to envision mass action in relation to state politics. And if we're thinking of a diversity of tactics on the streets, that also, to me, totally includes a diversity of, of, of political tactics, including parliamentary projects. And even though both Corbyn and Biden, uh, sorry, and Sanders were defeated, I think these kind of, of projects, the Green New Deal, the Green Industrial Revolution here in the UK, uh, these, these were worthwhile projects and they need to be pursued again and there needs to be a whole spectrum of initiatives and campaigns and activities including parliamentary campaigns for us to be able to make any progress that's that's my yeah. at the I, I desperately want to take up the full three hours we have this room booked for but I want to get one more question in um, before we before we maybe close out here on the point you were making Andreas uh, and ask about this relationship between the sort of mass movement left in Brazil and the party structure. I, in the midst of the sort of post-traumatic stress disorder of the of the US left post-Trump going uh, to Brazil and, you know, just seeing this sort of very dynamic relationship, not uncomplicated, of course, but between the MST, the Landless Workers Movement, and the PT is something that, you know, is a level of organization that seems unfathomable almost in the United States. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about what are the lessons you think can be really taken away from not just that relationship, also between the MTST and PASOL, perhaps, and the sort of broader social movement infrastructure in Brazil, and what, you know, isn't working? I mean, what what should be left behind? And, you know, when, when, when people look, you know, hopefully toward a Lula victory uh, in the in the next election, sort of what are the right things to be taking away from what kind of led to that movement for folks who, you know, might not be as familiar with the Brazilian context? Well, yeah, the Brazilian context is one of like very strong leftist fragmentation in general. Like I, I wrote my first book on, on this topic and it was quite depressing <laughs> uh, doing field work on this, figuring out like, um, you know, the level of sectarianism and just not sitting down with certain people, but also in the sense that um, there are being like processes uh, from when the PT was in power in relation to the social movement that led to demobilization within these movements and a lot of disagreement from the inside. So like, um, at a coordination level, but also like a, a more of a mass level. And after the, you know, after the coup against Yuma Rousseff, these movements had to like reorganize themselves that, well, we did not get what we actually demanded when the PT was in power. Like a grand reform was not a reality. And, uh, and that follows through with a lot of other things, you know, like the homeless workers movement, the MTSD, um, dealing under a PT, uh, PT uh, city government in Sao Paulo and, you know, demanding urban reform. And that's not happening either. So 
We know that these challenges are there and uh, under the repression of the Bolsonaro government, you know, you have to figure out all the ways of surviving and making yourself, uh, yourself relevant. And I think this infrastructure of the social movements in Brazil is one that uh, suffered a lot because of the criminalization that came from the mainstream media and from, from the governments as well. And right now, showing solidarity has been like a very strong way of being like, you know, turning to people and say, hey, we're here, we're relevant, and we want you to join as well. Like, we, we will be stronger the more massive we are, not necessarily according to whatever party is in power right now. So during the pandemic, Brazil is going through a terrible state of hunger and food insecurity right now, besides the over 600,000 people dead uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, MST delivering like organic food from their land settlements to people who are going hungry. And the MTST building community kitchens uh, throughout the country. I think this is a huge lesson uh, for movements to like, hey, we're here and we're hearing you and we're here to serve and that's showing more relevance. And I think this is good. I just hope that this lesson stays in terms of like, if a, a Lula government comes back, we don't have any more this illusion that, well, the, now we can get, you know, some spot within the ministry or, you know, we're going to be with this secretariat and change is going to come through these very institutional levels. Uh, we need to make sure that mobilization stays high and that, that for me should, like, should be the largest lesson in terms of the movements. Like the demobilization was a reality and it also shows why we're not, we're still struggling to, you know, get people in the streets. We're still struggling to get people to yes you're against bolsonaro but really you just want to wait for the elections for um for uh 2022 and then people are just like waiting for the calendar again whereas the right wing in brazil they didn't wait for the calendar to get rid of juma Rousseff, right they went ahead and they organized mass mobilizations and they orchestrated a coup so um where like our lessons need to be like related to our own mistakes, but also to the way that like right wing social movements, uh, they they were quite clever. Like right now they're like suf suffering a lot because of their tensions within the Bolsonaro government, but they were quite clever before because they knew they had to like mobilize strongly and they didn't uh, they shouldn't wait for an opportunity. They had to create an opportunity. And of course, they do that for like for evil reasons. But on our side, fighting for social social justice and for the movements that are fighting for socialism, that means creating the the spaces and not waiting around for when a party is going to come and is going to help us and. The movements get involved with the parties. I think it's important. I'm a, like I'm a firm believer in the political party, uh, but the movements need to set their own agenda. They they can't just wait for the political party uh, to direct them and tell them what to do and set the rules of the game. Because the the movements are the ones right now much more positioned to like lead into like these massive actions, not the political parties in Brazil. Yeah, it's a little despairing in the United States just that so many people got involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign through 2016 and 2020, and there is great work happening through institutions like the Democratic Socialists of America, but there isn't really an infrastructure to guide those people through a moment which is not defined by an electoral fight, and it has been you know, entirely on an electoral timeline, and people are understandably without you know an institution an institutional left to sort of pick up that energy um are a little lost and guiding through more complex antagonisms as well right so like when you have an antagonist like trump or bolsonaro it's, it's easier to guide people but when you're dealing with the contradictions of like the the you know the liberal establishment that's more complicated to navigate yes and even the sort of left end as a NGO sort of climate movement left really struggled. I mean, I think this is a governance question in part of being, you know, unaccustomed to having any access to power just to even criticize the Biden administration off the bat over what were some very, um, you know, underwhelming climate plans that have become progressively less, more underwhelming as, as they've gone through the legislative process. I am being told from our dutiful producers that we have time for one more question. So I'm going to ask one more uh, of Andreas. And that's to ask in a sort of, you know, friendly left setting 
a question that I'm sure you have fielded a lot over uh, the last several several months. To set this up, you know, I'll just say a little bit about what's what's you've described in How to Blow Up a Pipeline and in other 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 writing that you've done about the sort of um, parting of ways in some sense between a sort of class struggle left and the environmental left and how in, you know, the sort of movements that you're describing, those two things have been a bit at odds for a moment. So I'm wondering here if you can just talk a little bit about bridging what might seem, you know, and is is in some sense, I think, a, a reality that uh, efforts to sabotage fossil fuel infrastructure um, could raise fuel prices, could um, disrupt the lives of working people in a genuine way, right? Uh, and how to think about that, those sorts of disruptions and what, you know, I, I think you compellingly make the case for is the need for those sorts of disruptions as we're trying to build a sort of left eco-socialist movement that is taking the concerns of working people very seriously, including people who um, have livelihoods bound up in pipeline jobs and the fossil fuel economy more broadly. Uh, this is an extremely important and crucial question, of course. That I'm so, sure you're sick of answering. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sick of it. Uh, it's, I mean, obviously we need to grapple with this if we're going to have an escalation. So, uh, <clears throat> um, to begin with, uh, the comments in the Glasgow Agreement uh, yesterday released a report called Drill Baby Drill, where they show that between now and next year, 800 new oil and gas wells will be opened. Uh, these should be sabotaged. If that happens, if you sabotage those things that are under construction, you might well get a spike in the oil price that could translate into uh, higher gas prices. Yes, and that might cause pain uh, and uh, outrage from people who rely on their cars. Uh, that That's potentially problematic, but I think it's very difficult to imagine, to begin with, the transition away from fossil fuels that doesn't at some point involve a price spike in uh, fossil fuels. I mean, uh, before the moment when fossil fuels are completely taken out of the market and are completely absent, up until that point during the transition, the price of these fuels will rise uh, if there is a transition at all. So the way to deal with this is to um, make sure that the economic costs incurred by um, working class people who rely on gas, for instance, to get to their jobs are uh, compensated or dealt with through some kind of redistributionary scheme. Through some, I mean, in the, for instance, in the um, carbon fee and dividend or tax and dividend schemes, you have various models for how to um, have a high carbon price and then redistribute the costs, redistribute the, the incomes to, to uh, low-income earners. Obviously, that's not something that activists engaging in sabotage can, can accomplish on their own. So there is a risk that you get a price spike without any kind of compensatory mechanism in place, yes. Uh, but, it, well, that's one reason why you need to combine these kind of actions, if they happen, with with uh, political projects for pushing for 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 just transition and for the green new deal or whatever, that they are not in and of themselves uh, sufficient. Um, I do think that e any escalation will happen when the climate crisis deepens and intensifies, and it's going to get worse. And when it gets worse, I mean, this summer was really, really bad in many places, even in the global north, in the US and in Europe. Um, when it gets worse, the really perverse situation would be if fossil fuels remain cheap and affordable on the market. Um, and uh, it, it would be absurd, uh, not the least for, for working class people, uh, if the total normality of uh, these fuels was just would just continue, so imagine that next summer or a few summers down the road we'll have a, a season in hell that's far worse than what we had this year, which is quite likely. I think there will be a great reservoir of 
of anger that is just waiting for an outlet. And I think that in such a moment, uh, direct actions that, that strike against fossil fuel production and companies, but that might also, in sort of second phase, lead to gas and oil price hikes, would uh, stand a chance to receive quite a high degree of popular support. Because people are already terrified of what's going on i mean in for instance in italy uh, just a few months ago record levels of concern about climate change were recorded because italy is in a really bad state with uh, torrential downpours and and landslides in the north and extreme heat and wildfires in the south the company that is responsible for most of these new uh, oil and gas wells coming into operation between now and next year is ENI, the Italian oil and gas company, which is very rarely discussed in these contexts. Now, if, <laughs> if we look at the situation in Italy, if Italy, which seems likely, suffers a similar summer next year, and some people in Italy start to uh, engage in sabotage of ENI property, then I think that you could quite likely gain a lot of support from working class people in Italy for such actions, even if that would cause a spike in, uh, in gas prices. Obviously, there's no guarantee because you can't count on the rationality of people in, the, in, this, in this climate breakdown. Uh, but I do think that if you engage in sabotage in a careful and intelligent manner. That means to begin with, you target the companies, the corporations that are in the business of expanding fossil fuel installations when that can't really be done anymore. And such actions, I mean actions against ENI property or total property, I mean their headquarters or whatever, doesn't necessarily hit the material interests of working class people. If you want to do um, uh, uh, sabotage in the consumption sphere, Obviously, there are great opportunities for, for targeting luxury emissions that are not uh, committed by working class people. In fact, there, there, is, there was a piece uh, published in Financial Times of all uh, newspapers just the other day. I, I have it here on my computer that says, uh, The fight to protect the planet is shifting in ways that could soon exacerbate conflicts within countries, particularly between social classes. Or to put it bluntly, between the rich and the rest, the top 1% by income of the world's population account for about 15% of emissions, according to UN data. That is more than double the share of the bottom 50%. And The Guardian published a report the other day, um, an item... Uh, relating a, a, a report published by Oxfam and the Stockholm Environment Institute, which shows again in detail how uh, l these luxury emissions from mega yachts, from private jets, now also from space travel, are causing an insane amount of CO2. And these things could potentially be sabotaged, and I think they should be, without that hurting the interests of working class people. Yeah. There is Obviously, the potential for error and mistake here. And I think Insulate Britain is a case of something that at least borders on strategic failure. Because when they go out into highways quite randomly in the UK and target commuters more or less indiscriminately, that tends to hit working class people who are trying to get to their jobs and elicits a lot of rage. There have been, you know, workers saying things like, Why, am I stopping you from insulating Britain? Why don't you go after the millionaire oligarchs instead? And, you know, truck drivers who say these kind of things have a point, I am afraid. Uh, so, uh, if you're thinking about disruptive tactics, you need to be careful and you need to be class conscious. And you need to begin by trying to locate suitable targets in the sector of capital accumulation, so the process of extracting more profit from fossil fuels. That's the, I mean, that's the central prime mover of, of global heating. And if you want to do, do these kind of actions in the sphere of consumption, then you need to target the consumption of the rich, not the consumption of working class people. Yeah. Uh, obviously, again, there are risks uh, of, of, uh, of eliciting um, unintended political uh, or, or, or rather 
how should I put it, un unfortunate, unwanted political effects. And if you do so by your actions, you need to uh, have no prestige and, and be able to uh, revise your mode of operation and do something differently. And with, in the case of Insulate Britain, I'm quite struck by their sort of uh, obstinacy and stubbornness in persisting in targeting commuters, when even though they elicit a lot of outrage. Now, uh, I mean, I have some understanding for what they're doing and some level of sympathy as well, but I think uh, it would make more sense to go after the rich. They certainly exist in this country as well, the richest 1%, and they have their mega yachts and their private jets and uh, whatnot. And these are not, I mean, th these, what the new research is showing is that, that these emission sources are not just symbolic targets for dogmatic leftist class hatred. I mean, there are really considerable sources of CO2 emissions and drivers of emissions growth. They are really significant problems and no one is targeting them. I mean, governments are not targeting them because governments are beholden to the rich. But the climate movement isn't really targeting them either because the climate movement doesn't have a real class consciousness, at least not in this country where the X, you know, XR has really, really failed on articulating the class dimensions of the climate, uh, of the climate problem. And here I think we have to, a lot to learn and quickly. Yeah. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice note to, to end on, just leaving people with an image of yachts and uh, <laughs> their you know, potential vulnerability to... Um, direct action of, of various sorts. So I have a million more questions, but I think we're going to have to wrap it there. Uh, thank you so much, Andreas and Sabrina. I'm wondering if there uh, are places that you can be found if people want to follow your work and anything you want to promote that's that's out, out in the world that you want to direct people toward. Uh, I'm everywhere on social media. <laughs> so on Twitter, you can follow, find me at, um, at SAFBF. But um, I have this communications project called Tazionzi or Thesis 11 in English. And the videos, at least, they're all subtitled in English. And sometimes there are videos uh, directly in English as well, if people want to uh, keep up with that. I'm afraid I'm nowhere on social media unless someone... Good for you. Yeah. yeah. Much better for your mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> unless someone posts something. But uh, yeah, I, I, you can find me elsewhere. All right. Thank you both so much. Thanks. Thank you, Kate.